Hey, hey, welcome to the Worked Podcast. My name is Mark Washbourne. I'm CEO of ReadyTech. And at Worked, we like to unravel and unpick the future of work and education. And I'm very lucky today to have an amazing guest with me. It's Andrew Joyce. Andrew is the co-founder of Found Careers, Australia's only 100% app-based jobs platform targeted at millennials and young people looking for work. Prior to starting Found, Andrew worked across a range of other businesses, including in private equity, management consulting, and technology. Andrew enjoys a privileged view, an insider's view on what is going on with the connection between jobs and workers and where things are headed. The topics that we're going to explore today are looking at some of the mega trends driving that work landscape in terms of the gig economy, remote work, and modern workplaces. Are we moving to a world where work is more gigged up with technology driving more flexibility and fluidity? Are we moving inevitably towards us all working as contractors from cafes? Will it deliver the dream of the work-life balance or does that dream have its limits? That's what we want to find out. and It should be a riveting discussion. So, uh, Andrew, thanks for coming on, my man. First question is, how the devil are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you. It's a lovely winter's day here in Sydney. So yeah, great to come out and do this. Oh, no, it's turned a little bit, but thank you so much for coming on. Now, you grew up in Tasmania and you've had quite an interesting and colourful journey, career journey yourself. So tell us a bit about that, first of all. Yeah, for sure. Look, I think I'm still trying to work out what I want to do when I grow up, to be honest. <laughs> so I grew up in Tasmania, finished year 12 down there, really didn't know what I wanted to do after that, but had a reasonable idea of what I didn't want to do. So I certainly had a few teachers saying, why don't you go and become a GP? Why don't you go and do medicine? I was like, no, 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 that's, that's never going to happen. I don't like people enough to want to do that. And so I ended up doing engineering at UNSW up here, which was really interesting. And I think it was, I probably got two years through a four-year degree there and went, I'm not really sure I want to be an engineer either, but yeah, I'm halfway through. It's still pretty interesting. I'm enjoying the maths and the science. So let's keep going and see where that goes. And so kind of stumbled from there into management consulting effectively. I think management consultancy is a bit of a, sort of a refuge for engineers who've lost their way as engineers who can add up and multiply and things like that. So into there and then kind of from there, that was my intro to sort of business, you know, the kind of business world as a whole. And so from there through a corporate gig into private equity for a little while. So looked at investing in a whole range of companies, sort of began small around Australia and from there into my own startup. Been all over the place really. And I'd imagine through that whole journey, and lots of different experiences. There's been a lot of uh, skills that have been transferable along the way from one gig to another. Yeah, 100%. I don't think I've ever been formally qualified for the job that I've had. So I was just a pure engineer working in a management consulting firm advising companies like Telstra and Westpac on how to run their business. And so no commerce, no accounting, no qualifications in there. Similarly with the investment work, again, sort of no real business qualifications, but a lot of that stuff you know, if you can get through engineering maths, you can get through business maths very, very easily. It's probably the first six months of engineering maths will cover you off for the business career for the rest of your life. And so businesses at the end of the day, I just think of them as big complex systems, which is, again, something like engineering teaches you to break that down really well. I think good solid maths is an incredible foundation for business, don't you? hundred percent. I'd say it's a good foundation for anything. Yeah. Certainly younger people that I know, it's like, look, do whatever you want in year 11, year 12. But try and pick up some maths along the way because everything online now is so dependent on maths, even marketing. Um, people think of marketing as a, you know, in some ways almost art, 
artistically related, I suppose, but you know, great online marketers are great mathematicians. So you probably really started with more a traditional career path and then went off and founded a startup. So tell us a bit about that decision and that part of the journey. Yeah, for sure. You know, startups are interesting. I don't think there's anyone who's really qualified to do a startup. You know, there is no pathway to ending up in a startup. And so my co-founder and I previously had a different business before we started Found. So this was very much a, I think it's probably two, there's two types. There's small business got big where you start something as a bit of a side project and it ends up growing and there's startups, which is, you know, you start big and you've got to try and get bigger. So the first one in that category was quite a simple business. We just managed to scale up. We were working with Uber a lot as they were scaling. And so that was a great foundation for just understanding things and watching it grow. Whereas the second time around it was, okay, let's hire a team of 10 from day one and raise some money from investors and kind of go from there. And that's a much hairier journey doing it that way because you know you're all on the line from day one so we might come back to the startup later and talk about some of the problems that you've been trying to solve but i think that exposure that you had to uber but also some of the insights you're getting from managing the jobs platform got some really interesting insights i think into the gig economy for example so but really big topic you know we live in a world where uberization is actually a real word in our dictionary so what's your worldview on the gig economy yeah, look, it's fascinating. And it's something that if you went back 10 years ago and said to someone the words gig economy, they'd look at you strangely, you know, what are you talking about? And it's something that's really hit probably the last 10 years, really in the last five years in Australia, it started to come to the fore. And it's something that, again, it's been played up in the media, it's gotten very political along the way, a lot of people have very strong views on it. But at the same time, you know, Uber is an amazing case study of a business that's just achieved this perfect sort of product market fit in a small niche with what they do. So there's a lot of people who hate taxis. They're the perfect consumers. There's a lot of people who want to make money on the side who own a car. They're the perfect providers. And so they've done this incredible job of plugging the two together and raising sufficient capital, frankly, globally to be able to resource that really well from day one. So they've really rapidly penetrated this amazing niche with a perfectly fitting product. And I think people have seen Uber take off and it's kind of went vertical and they went, wow, this is amazing this is taking off so fast it's going to take over the entire economy i think that's certainly the view kind of two or three years ago where all of a sudden you go everyone's going to be a contractor everyone's going to be you know gig type person different job every day all this kind of thing and i think we're now starting to see the natural limits of that gig economy so you know we're not all working for uber we're not all working for our tasker we go to work in the same place every day with the same people around us and i think it's what was probably missed out of that initial conversation was productivity. Every time I've started a new job, I've been useless for at least the first three months, if not six, arguably from some of the bosses I've had in the past. So, And that's the factor of life. Like Companies are a collection of people who work together. The more experience they have together, the more productive they get. And so if you kind of snapped your fingers and everybody's working a new job tomorrow, the economy would literally shut down. No one would know what's going on. Some jobs in particular are just not suited and will never be suited to having a high turnover of workers. So let's explore that. You know, I'd, I'd imagine there's still some areas where we might see further gigging and more contract work. You know, we're certainly seeing with knowledge workers. And I think a lot of the jobs of the future that you might think about data science and cyber seem to be well set up for contracting. But so maybe where do you think we might see more, but also where do you think that are the roles where we're just going to see limits that are not going to be able to be contracted in that way? Yeah, for sure. And a lot of people, when they go gig economy, they think, oh, it'll be the bottom end jobs, which will end up kind of being gigged, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. I actually don't agree with that at all. 
a lot of the jobs that work really well and have done for a long time. For example, a GP can get a locum in when they go away. Someone who's acting as a GP can see someone in 20-minute blocks. They're going to be just as good doing their job in Rose Bay as they are in Parramatta or as they are in Bendigo. On the other hand, someone like a receptionist and someone goes, oh, you definitely have gig economy people working as a receptionist. Like, There's just no way in the world you could do that. So being in reception requires a good understanding of you know, who works in the building, what are the relationships, who are the people that come in every day, how do you handle those things. So it's very much more about the type of work that's being done than the level or the pay grade or the location or anything else. And so I think it all comes back to productivity again. So if you've got a job which is incredibly standardized, so again, being a GP, very standardized, you're seeing patients who have illnesses, they can be plugged into kind of any workplace in Australia and do a pretty good job from the word go. If you've got a job which relies a lot on deep knowledge of personal relationships, for example, or is highly variable between workplaces, they're the ones that are just never going to work. And so with your example before, data science, I think the kind of exploratory data science, absolutely. So someone who comes in when a business has no knowledge of data science and sets them all up would work perfectly to move them between it. Where it's you know maintenance of a tech stack or maintenance of a reporting system, for example, that would be a disaster if you lose all the knowledge within your business and you're trying to plug different people in every day. Now, that's interesting. I think that the key word there was continuity. Absolutely. And, you know, be that relationship or knowledge. Yes. And you think about sales roles or customer service roles, right? It's actually often uh, long-term relationships that those are built on. That sounds tough to gig up. Yeah, and you bring it back to Uber again. You know, Uber is built on very short-term relationships between a driver performing an entirely commoditized service, which is, you know, driving a car from A to B. It's very low barrier to entry. As a consumer of that, you're never going to see the driver again. And that's fine. That's the nature of the service. So it works perfectly. But anywhere where it's, as it requires, yeah, continuity over a period of time or knowledge of the workplace or there's a productivity benefit in being in the job for a longer period of time, it's just not going to happen. I think just go back to that other word that you use, productivity. I think there is probably been a prevailing view that in some ways the gig economy is more productive you know, particularly that in the sharing economy, you know, we have the capacity for use of more existing assets that may be underutilized, that potentially people are actually in the wrong jobs and unproductive yes. and due to that. You know, it's yep. quite a common view, for example, by McKinsey. So yep. how do you sort of put all that together? I think there's two things that need to be separated out. One is how do people get paid? And the other is how productive is the person per hour, for example. And so a lot of the benefits, again, with some of these gig platforms come in pushing all the risk onto the worker. And so everything that's been successful in the gig economy, be it Airtasker, Uber, Deliveroo, the workers are being paid piecemeal. So they're being paid per job or per task completed. In the Australian workplace laws, you can't do that on an hourly basis. So unless you can really accurately define what the person's being paid for and meet a whole bunch of very, very stringent requirements around proving they're a contractor, you just can't get that kind of contractor arbitrage, which... I 100% agree with that. You look at the the downside of where this has happened in the US, for example, and there's just this constant pressure to kind of by the workforce to sort of bid down the price of work because there's such desperation for work. And so having that floor in Australia of kind of minimum wage, people can only be contractors if they are genuinely sort of operating their own business on a piecemeal basis, I think is fantastic. Yeah, we, we don't normally stray into politics or religion on the podcast, but... We'll avoid religion, <laughs> 100%. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, when you start to talk about productivity, there's the two things. One is, can you actually make people do more work per hour? Then there's, can you push the risk of them not doing that work onto the workers kind of 
PL or their own balance sheet effectively. So I think on that first point, the how much work can they do per hour, that's productivity. We know that goes backwards because people don't produce much output when they first start a job. And that second point, I think, as I said, the law's very well defined. It has been for a long time. And these companies have kind of pushed up against it and been pretty aggressively pushed back by the law as well. I think we've found a really interesting niche case with Uber and Airtasker and stuff where they've gone from zero to very rapidly into a, you know, a niche in the economy. But I think that's kind of it in terms of the limits of where this can go. That's really interesting. I think to look at the actual benefits here, you know, look at contracting and gigging from the employer's perspective as well. A lot of this has obviously been tech enabled. It opens up a global market for skills. You know, it's a much wider access to often hyper specialized talent, for example, yep. in a world where also it's potentially hard to attract and retain talent. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it allows employers to scale up and down. So it's pretty appealing as well, right? Yeah. And it's, I suppose, when you start to look at, okay, we want to pay people per piece of work. And it's something particularly IT related, for example, it doesn't rely on a human relationships and kind of a knowledge of the workplace. You then start to open up, well, what is this work that I'm getting done? Where can it be done? Can this be offshored? Can this be done remotely? I've been on both sides of this. I've been an employee. I've been an employer. When you start to say, okay, we've chunked this piece of work up into something else, where is the best and most efficient place to get this done? It may well not be Australia in some cases. Yeah. I remember sitting down speaking to a head of content at ReadyTech, spent many years as a freelance writer, about five years, and he was going literally from job to job. First of all, one thing he said, he had to be very entrepreneurial to go from gig to gig, and that doesn't necessarily suit everyone. But of course, he had a fantastic lifestyle. It was very flexible. Yep. a lot of variety. But over time, he found that, first of all, there was probably somewhat of a race to the bottom uh, yes. with this type 100%. of work. It was global competition. He had variability of earnings. Yep. And as he got older, maybe his responsibilities increased. And he wanted, for example, he wanted to buy a house. It mm-hmm. became a lot less appealing. Yeah. One thing I think a lot of people miss if they want to go and work freelance is a lot of doing freelance work is sales. You, know, you could be the best person in the world at whatever it is that you do in this little niche, but if you can't get out there and market and sell yourself through whatever means that is, you're never going to succeed as a freelancer. So if you haven't done sales before and if you're uncomfortable yeah. with kind of pushing yourself and selling yourself, which to be honest, most people are, particularly in Australia, we're very, we don't like people who come in and talk themselves up. That's kind of the nature of selling. That's what you've got to do. And so it's a much bigger shift and it's much harder, I think, than a lot of people realize because of that. And as the unpredictability of it as well. But obviously, on the other hand, you know, it's been fantastic, I think, for potentially older workers that want to keep active. It seems to be very popular with younger people and millennials. Uh, you know, I think it's opened up some amazing opportunities for single parents wanting to work from home. People with disabilities are able to do more from home. There's been some big benefits come out of it as well. Yeah, 100%. And it, there's that full spectrum as well between being a full-time employee in a regular job who happens to work from home, be it full-time or part-time, all the way through to I'm a gig knowledge worker who is working on projects all over the world and I might have more work than I can poke a stick at or nothing for a couple of months as well. And so I think there's that full spectrum of opportunity and it's just people have to decide where they're comfortable sitting because many people will be very, very uncomfortable sitting up at that end of, you know, I need to go and hunt for my work every day pretty much. Other people will get bored out of their brains working for the same employer on the same kind of project for much more than a couple of weeks. And so there's the opportunity to go and do that. And I said risk and reward kind of follows that spectrum as well. Yeah, I had an Uber driver the other day on the way to work and he was wearing a suit and I asked him what he was up to and he was actually doing like an hour of driving 
on yeah. his way to work. <laughs> and the technology was able to enable that. And that sort of made me think about the ability to earn extra dollars and the side hustle, which is yeah. becoming a real thing, right? Yeah. If you look at the Australian workforce, there's more people in part-time work. There's more people who are underemployed. How do you resolve that? If you're, you know, you're looking for full-time work, you only get 20 hours in a part-time job. Do you quit the 20-hour-a-week job and try and find the 40-hour-a-week job or do you try and find another 20-hour-a-week job? And I think this, again, comes back to that side hustle and the ability to make money on the side through whatever means is super attractive. I think, again, there's solutions in traditional employment here which most employers haven't unlocked yet. And so employers will sit there and go, hey, we've got empty slots on the roster, we need to fill them or we've got opportunities for overtime, whatever it might be. In many cases, they don't actually think about their existing workforce doing that. And so what employers are trying to solve for is, in many cases, more flexibility. What the employees are trying to solve for is more flexibility. And sadly, where this is falling down is actually the technology that lives inside the employer in most cases. And so, again, kind of gig gets confused with just better productivity, better use of an existing workforce. We've certainly talked to a bunch of people who've done a lot of work in the aged care sector where it's typically because of the 24-7 nature of operating nursing homes, you've got this very large in-demand roster-based platform going on. In most cases, it's very hard for people to get the full 40 hours a week because of the way the rosters work. But at the same time, for the nursing home, they have to have a mandated minimum level of staffing at all times. In many cases, they're trying to do the roster. They can't fill it necessarily. They have to go out to agency and pay 20 to 50% margins on top of whatever it might be. Plus, they're bringing new staff in who have extra risk, all this kind of thing. And so one of the platforms we've been talking to basically look at just opening those shifts up to the existing employee base. And in most cases, they're able to fill almost all those shifts with the existing employees. And the big learning for the employers in particular was how much latent demand there was for extra work within their existing workforce. They just didn't realize was there and they didn't have the ability to really go out and have that discussion with their employees. Now, that's really interesting what you're saying because I guess what we see there is potentially that we still have that full-time role, but technology is really enabling that flexibility Potentially, you know, it's partly been the gig economy that's lit a fire under all this as well, right? Yeah, and I think the, you know, the way that people think about things has changed. Like people understand that, you know, you don't get a job at 18, work nine to five until you're 65, get the gold watch and sail off into the sunset. You know, I doubt there's anybody who's 18 now who'll do that out of the entire economy pretty much. But the way that people construct their careers and the way that employers construct their workforce, it's almost a portfolio approach is the most effective way of doing it. And so, employers need flexibility. They need great staff who they can invest in training, who are then very productive, who provide great service for their business, but they need the ability to flex them up and down. And so in many cases, I think what's holding it back, it's not desire from the employer or the desire from the employee. It's actually systems, which is quite sad where you've got this kind of tail wagging the dog of, in many cases, antiquated rostering or just platforms that don't give them enough flexibility. And so they've lurched towards gig economy and flexible workers and labor hire and this kind of stuff, whereas actually the solution's in front of them already. So I guess connected to all that and the gig economy, it sits with employment rights and it's probably one yep. of the big criticisms of the gig economy is the lack that thereof. Yes. And it obviously seems that, as often happens, that technology in this sector sort of galloped along and regulation hasn't caught up, but yep. potentially also solvable, right? Again, kind of coming back to what's good about gig, what's bad about gig, you know, what's good about gig is the ability for people to go and get more work, kind of build that portfolio of opportunities, get a side hustle. It's really, it all comes down to flexibility. Like that's the positive. What's bad is, and this has been an issue with some of the platforms so far, is that 
there's not protection around how much people earn per hour. There's also not work density. So that's a big thing. You know, you can't actually get 40 hours a week of work delivering food for Deliveroo um, or delivering food for Uber Eats. There's not 40 hours a week of work to do that. And so there's never the ability to build a full-time career there. Again, as a worker, you take all the risk. You're basically taking all the business risk of the platform having a, you know, not a very busy night or too many people turning up to work and that kind of thing. And so I think there's, you know, the plus is flexibility. You can achieve the plus, that flexibility plus through just better management of your own staff in many cases. And so, again, we've had to go this full spectrum of there's a whole new way of working, a whole new platform. It's all external. It's all quite extremely done for people to actually look at it and say, well, you know, I want flexibility. Okay, let's revisit that. Can I achieve flexibility in a much better way for both my business and my staff as well and just get to better outcomes? So the biggest cohort of workers on your platform are obviously young people. Yep. I know you've got some interesting insights into that. And I think that this type of contracting work, of course, does seem very attractive to them, particularly in those younger years. And they don't seem as maybe as concerned by career but also probably attracted to this sort of autonomous work and very strong sense of choice. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on. I think there's, in many cases, you know, we hear from young people a lot of the time, I just want a job. I want a way of making money. I need to make money. I need that to exist in the economy at the moment. And so in many cases, it's kind of the lowest common denominator. They'll fall back to whatever they can get. And this is where that kind of worker protection is really important because, if you said to someone who's desperate for a job, hey, you know, come here and I'll pay you five bucks an hour, there's every chance they'll take it. That's not great for the economy. That's not great for anybody if that's the way that we kind of get to. And so I think gig work can be a little bit like a sugary drink. It's a great kind of pick-me-up at various points. You can't live on it. You know, you can't create your entire diet out of junk food. You can't create an entire career out of gig stuff. But as I said, it's great as a side. It's great as a way to kind of hold you through. And as I said, it's the risk is that people come to rely on it or come to see it as, hey, this is a long-term option, and it's not, unfortunately, the way it's operating at the moment. Just one of the underlying issues that you also talked about is this casualization of the workforce, and there's a lot of underemployment with young people. Obviously, many finding it tough to get a job. Yeah. How worried should we be about that? Massively. Again, it gets very, very underreported in the media, but if you say for young people what's underemployed plus unemployed, it's sitting over 30% now. So roughly one in three young people in Australia across all geographies, across all demographic, aren't getting as much work as they want. And so this is up from kind of 10 odd percent 20 to 5 to 30 years ago. And so there's loads of long-term studies that say if you get someone into work in reliable, engaging work when they're young, it basically sets them up for life. They'll learn the ability to, to earn an income, get used to going to work, they'll pay taxes, They'll do all those kind of good things that really make the economy work. If you don't get someone engaged in the workforce in those early years, so in many cases kind of from when you finish education, be that at 15 or be that at 23 if you've gone through uni, if those first five years are really kind of messy and untidy, can't find work, can't find enough work, the chances of them then dropping out of the workforce, you know, dropping back to living on benefits, and actually the extreme case with that is it becomes intergenerational as well. And so it's easy to kind of... You know, I've been accused of overplaying this, but saying that actually this could be a multi-generational issue, it's quite realistic because young people who can't find secure work, who end up dropping out of the workforce, who have kids, kids who grow up with non-working parents are much more likely to be non-working as well. And so this could kind of echo through the generations. And it's a very, very recent thing as well. Like it is literally the last 20 to 30 years that this has all happened. So I don't know how this is going to play forward, to be honest. So look, scary trend. How do we arrest that? Yeah, I don't know. 
It's a really interesting question. You know, I'm kind of mid-30s now. When I was at high school, all my friends were working as working on checkouts at Coles. Those jobs don't exist anymore. A lot of others were working at Macca's. Those jobs, you know, in many cases don't exist anymore. And so I'm kind of overall, I suppose, a big believer that the economy will typically solve for, you know, the Industrial Revolution didn't mean that everybody went out of work. The point that the motor car was invented, you didn't suddenly lose, all people who are looking after the horses didn't suddenly lose their job. They found, you know, the economy creates new jobs as it develops. I'm not sure what's going on with the rise of automation and robotics. We're about to see AI obviously will, over the next 20 years, start to come into play. And I think it hasn't at all yet, by the way. But particularly for that lower end of the workforce, a lot of those jobs where they're repetitive and quite manual jobs are just being taken over now. So whether it's customer service, kind of manual process work, they're definitely going to go to robots. They're definitely going to go to sort of, you know, you go into Macca's now and you order off a screen, for example. That was a person even three years ago. It's going to be a real challenge to find those entry-level jobs for people in the future because, as I said, that kind of entry-level basic work, just there's no need for it to exist anymore in many cases. Yeah, whereas there might be jobs, for example, like services jobs and jobs that can really only be served by humans and will yes. there be enough of those? Yeah, 100%. And look, one of the big areas which is developing massively, obviously, is kind of human services in Australia. And so aged care, disability care, childcare, nursing, all those types of jobs, there's massive opportunities for employment in those roles now. And certainly for anyone who was kind of 16 to 25, who's not quite sure what they want to do, but enjoys working with people, I would say like head for that part of the economy as fast as you can, because Mm. there is no way to automate a nurse or an aged care worker or a childcare worker, and there never will be. But ironically, again, it's very hard to predict what jobs are vulnerable to disruption, things like sports coaches, you're never going to have AI take over as a sports coach, because we're humans, we interact with other humans. So those very heavily interpersonal jobs will always exist. The challenge is a lot of people don't want those jobs. I know enough about myself to know that I could never ever take one of those jobs myself. I never could have at any point in my life as well. And so those jobs, you know, what are the alternative to those human services jobs which have historically existed, which may not in the future? Couldn't agree more with you on all that. And Do you mind if I take you on a diversion? Yeah, sure. And the other area that I really wanted to explore, I think it's actually really interconnected as well, is I guess the mega trend of remote work. Yep. Keen to get your views on it. And first of all, I'd like to say at our company, ReadyTech, we offer the opportunity for remote work. I think it's actually gone a long way to attracting and retaining some really talented people. But I think it also has its own flaws. So yeah, just interested in your broad views. Yeah, for sure. Look, I think there's like anything, it can be great in moderation. I think it's one of those things, again, a little bit, you kind of go from no remote work to a little bit of remote work and go, this is great. Let's roll this out further. Let's keep kind of extrapolating that trend. At some point, it becomes quite disruptive, I think. Disruptive and destructive. Organizations are made up of a collection of human beings who have relationships with each other and work together on a daily basis. That becomes much, much harder once you get into remote work. And particularly where it's you know, it works quite well if it's something like software development where everybody's working on a very discrete piece which then slots together under quite tightly controlled specifications later on. You're obviously never going to have human services remote workers. You know, you're not going to have a remote nurse, remote childcare worker. It's really very much a horses for courses. I think what we've found through, through found, we've tried it, hasn't really worked that well. And we've tried it across various parts of the business people become quite disconnected and it's very easy for people to start to diverge from where the business is going. And so people start going off on tangents and they might spend a day or two pursuing something which is not part of what we're truly trying to do, which 
if you're in the office just organically through the kind of water cooler conversation, you'd know that you'd get to pick up and you'd understand that what you were doing wasn't necessarily the right thing. With remote work, you've just got to be much more deliberate, like much more deliberate, much more structured and be, I suppose, have much better management, I would say, as well. And so it's more work for both the employee who's working remotely plus their manager, I'd say. No, I really agree with you on that about the engagement across a team. It just seems to be done better face-to-face. Just anecdotally from my side, I just really feel that the really big breakthroughs that we've had in our company tend to be when people are collaborating in the office. I agree. Remote work is, in many cases, I think, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to open plan offices. Like, I hate open plan offices, to be honest. My ideal work environment would be something that looked like 1970s, which is you walk in, you know, the junior people might be sitting around a table, for example. The mid to senior people have an office with one to two people where you can go in there. You can go in there and focus and get work done, or you can come out in the main area and you can collaborate and you can talk to people. The issue at the moment, and I've worked in open plan for most of my career, is that you're constantly surrounded by people. I need peace and quiet to be able to focus and get work done, particularly people who have some kind of introverted traits, which I certainly do as well. And so when you can't get it at work, you go, okay, well, I'm going to work from home. The right solution, ironically, is go and sit in an office somewhere, do it, and then come back out and collaborate as needed. So I actually think that, you know, the ideal setup from my view is everybody comes to work each day, but they have the ability to go and work independently within a workplace, I think is a much, much better solution. But I'll probably be called old-fashioned for saying this kind of thing You're quite conservative for a guy that runs quite a cool startup. Uh, I think it's everybody works differently, but I don't know very many people who are happy to sit there and just talk to each other all day or who get a benefit from being kind of collaborative 24-7. I think almost everybody that I know needs time to actually go away and produce output and get work done kind of in their own space, in their own headspace and stuff. And as I said, it's just... Open plan offices, particularly as you start to get to shared working environments, are just not conducive to that at all. I get why employers do it. The kind of the economics of how much rent per person do you need to pay is amazing with open plan. It's so much cheaper than giving everyone an office. But at the same time, then you create these other issues, which are kind of these second order issues that no one really accounts for, which can be, as I said, quite destructive, I think. The interesting part you said there is I think a lot of it does come down to personality type. Yep. You know, we from remote work or open plan offices. We are a combination of introverts and extroverts. Yep. Probably broadly, we are social animals that crave social interaction. And there's different types of work as well, isn't there? You know, there is the work that lends itself better to, to collaboration, but there's yeah. also the more focused and the deep work that yep. requires that solitude. It's quite interesting. You can go and do MBTI, for example, and you'll get called, oh, you're an E, you're an I. Every time I've done Myers-Briggs, I've come out as an incredibly strong extrovert because they'll ask you, if you're at a party, do you talk to everybody? Well, yeah, I do. Is do you feel obliged? Int- oh, no, I, I <laughs> like do, you know, doing this at the moment. I love chatting about all this kind of stuff. And there's time when I'm just like, leave me alone. I need to get work done. And so actually my work personality swings between, hey, I'm kind of managing people, fundraising, selling, kind of raging extrovert through to I'm building a model. I'm trying to do an investor deck. I'm trying to do something else here. Leave me alone. And so giving people the opportunity to swing between those personality types at work and kind of understanding that people don't work the same way between people, people don't work the same way all day, and actually most people need that combination of the two. Remote working has become this Band-Aid solution in many cases to a more fundamental problem, which is trying to lump everybody into working the same way in a big open space that's, again, kind of too noisy and not private enough in most cases. Yeah, it's funny. I actually 
think back to the 90s and when I started working and obviously it was the dawn of the laptop and the internet. Yeah. Predictions all the time that, you know, traffic would be so bad in cities. Everyone will work from home. Mm. And, you know, it's certainly not been the case. And actually, no. the vacancy rates for office space in Sydney, CBD, yep. you know, are very low. And yep. a lot of that's actually, interestingly, it's been taken up by tech companies yep. who actually want their people in offices. Yeah, well, one of the great anecdotes I heard the other day, so obviously Slack has been this phenomenal company which is basically building collaboration tools to let people communicate with each other in real time. And in many cases, when companies start to talk about remote work, they'll say, oh, we'll put Slack in to let people collaborate Slack don't let people work from home. So you've got this kind of global leading collaboration company that enables people to work from home that doesn't let their own workforce work from home. That's pretty interesting when you start to see things like that. You, you normally eat your own dog food, don't you? Well, it's, yeah, I'm sure well, they it's, use it internally. It's a little bit like the, the stories around, you know, the kids of the founders of a lot of these social media companies won't let their kids use their own platforms. You That's know, true. Apparently That's true. Zuckerberg won't let his kids near phones. That's a worry. It's a little bit like saying, oh, I'm a chef but i don't want to cook for my own family okay we need to have a bit of a think about this at this point the tools themselves though i don't think that we could do this as a business with remote work if we didn't have the combination of slack and zoom and we use the alassian suite right yeah but they're just going to keep getting better and better aren't they i think so but at the same time i'm yet to see anything that even approaches sitting across the table from someone and Interestingly as well, it's not actually sitting across the table in a meeting room. It might be sitting across the table having lunch or it's going to get a coffee together or standing around the water cooler. And I think you lose that with remote work. You lose that kind of informal interaction. And a lot of the, you know, in many cases people say, oh, what's the secret sauce for making organizations work? I think a lot of it is wrapped up in that kind of socialization and the bit that you lose with remote working, but you don't realize you're losing it because you don't necessarily value it. You value what you can structure and measure, so meetings and output and everything else, but you don't value that just one-on-one human interaction, and that's the bit that goes missing. I actually love being in the office as well. Yeah, I think I'm like you, and I think a couple of that things there is that I think as a leader that you feel that you want to be present. Yeah, but also you know I think when I did try working from home, I actually found that it's very difficult to find that moment of disconnection between work and home. Yes, which, which actually traveling to work tends to give me. You know, when do you change out of your pajamas, for example? When do you, you know, just basic things. It's very easy to get to three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, my personal experience, just feel like a bit of a grub, to be honest. You might not have left the house. You haven't been outside. You've you know, clearly done no exercise at that point, not even walked around a bit. And so certainly between the last corporate job I had sort of, the first startup was operating out of the lounge room for about two weeks and then I went completely mentally crazy at that point. Oh, I, I can see like, why it wouldn't suit a sartorial gentleman like you. Oh, you could see, I, I think this is a great outfit for radio here at the moment yeah. that I'm, I'm wearing right now. But And again, it's one of those things where I love one morning from home every couple of weeks. It's just this amazing kind of, oh, this is great, gets headspace, gets a bit of time out. By the time I get to kind of two full days from home, I've completely, as I said, just kind of lost the plot. I need to get out of the house and need to be around other people as well. I think you talked about that sort of fostering of relationships that you get from the office work. And I think the other thing is that that sense of belonging. And yes. uh, there was actually a study that remote workers are actually a lot less likely to be retained in businesses long term because they probably don't have that deeper connection. Yep. And, and I think that part of what I think we are finding is that we crave that connection, you yep. know, social as, as well as to uh, potentially, you know, the high being that is the company. Yeah. And I think as well, when I look back at jobs that I've loved, it's been very clear why the business exists, what you're turning up to work to do every day, and you're doing it with people that you really enjoy being around. And so 
they're two elements. The first one of kind of why am I here? What am I doing? Where's the company going? Again, you get that from kind of informal interactions and I'm sure your staff get it from kind of running into you having a coffee in the morning and this kind of stuff and you'll just those informal catch up and updates. My door is always open. Yeah, but you have a door though. See, that's I don't have a door. That's I'd love to have a door. And the second piece is you're doing it with people that you really enjoy being around. So a lot of my very good friends are people that I've worked with over the years and, you know, I've kind of met them, worked with them, enjoyed their company, enjoyed the sort of the intellectual stimulation that comes from, in many cases, again, kind of shooting the breeze, the informal chats. Absolutely. Right. And they're the, as I said, they're the two things that just, they're just MIA when you try and make remote working happen. Now, we were researching our office, uh, set up a new workplace last year and really found it interesting, the business uh, square from the US and they've separated out their areas into caves, campfires, town squares and city zones for the solitary work and the small team huddles and the much larger team That's meetings. very which new age. Very, very, <laughs> very US, right? Yep. But it kind of makes sense. Yep. Yeah, and it's just, you know, people are people. People will always be people. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, you're working in a cotton mill in the 18th century or whether you're working today for Google or Atlassian or whatever company it might be. Fundamentally, we all want the same thing, which is doing something that we care about in an environment that we find comfortable and safe environment. And so... How do you make that happen? Again, letting people kind of, I find this a bit cliched, but kind of bring their whole self to work and work in a way that they're comfortable with. So don't make the extrovert sit in the open plan. Sorry, don't make the introvert sit in the open plan all day. Don't lock the extrovert away in a cupboard and feed them spreadsheets under the door. Let people kind of do what feels natural and the productivity that comes out of that is enormous. Not to mention just the, you know, the satisfaction and just general well-being of everybody as well. Yeah. So uh, I think the other trend that obviously we've seen the last, 10, 15 years is this offices are quite experiential now almost for workers. Yeah. You know, we have cafes and, you know, and sleep pods and whatever else. So uh, do you think this trend continues? And all that also reinforces, I think, that blurring between work and home life. Yeah, I think a lot of that is a bit of, again, is a bit of a knee jerk to open plan offices. Again, where you've forced everybody to sit in an open plan, work kind of shoulder to shoulder with each other all the time. And so you've got to create these kind of pressure relief valves as well and so people need to be able to go and get away and do something else and so sleep pods I find just a bit bizarre to be honest like that's maybe I'm old you know I'm 34 but I'm like a sleep pod at work really why does this exist and so you know I think there's that and I think the you're having a cafe in an office okay great like that's good and actually it can be from a completely sort of ruthless capitalist point of view, actually, I'd rather have people take half an hour off for lunch and go to our cafe and provide them with free food than an hour going off site to go and get something else. And I think that's why you'll find a lot of the Silicon Valley companies do that. One, it's you get more hours of work out of people. Oh, and a cynical view, Andrew. I know some very hard-nosed <laughs> business people who provide free food to their employees for exactly that reason. And it turns out it also drives up retention. And so it's, you know, it's good for the employees and it's good for the employer. And I think it's... I said, look, just letting people kind of work organically and just creating the opportunity for people to do things the way they feel comfortable with, you can cut out a lot of the gimmicks if you do that. And I think a lot of this stuff is a bit gimmicky in many cases. It's been a fascinating discussion. And the last thing I just want to dig into is just a bit more about your own business. So in terms of found, just really like to take us back to the start of the problem that you saw there and you know, ultimately the big problems you're trying to solve. Yeah, for sure. So we... I said found grew out of a different startup that we had before this. And in that business, our biggest challenge was just trying to find staff and do that in a way that just didn't take up a lot of time, didn't take up a lot of money. We were looking for 
relatively entry-level roles. So we're looking for young people who wanted an opportunity who were relatively nearby and reasonably flexible as well. And so this was four years ago. So 2015, we tried the kind of traditional channels. So Gumtree, Seek, Indeed, Jora, a kind of an, a long arms list of other job boards as well. And every single one of those fed us the same thing, which was here's a whole bunch of PDFs, go away and read them and try and find the data that you need in those CVs. And for anybody who's done it, it's horrible. It's very time consuming. You have to spend a lot of time leafing through people who are just fundamentally unqualified, don't know why they've applied, doesn't really make any sense. And then, so from an employer's point of view, it's a very, very brutal and very manual process for those junior roles. From the candidate's point of view as well, we're still operating in a very similar fashion to the way that we did in 1960. So 1960, you'd see a job ad somewhere, you go away and you prepare a CV, so prepare a document, and you then submit it to the employer. So in the past, it was the ads in the newspaper, you get the typewriter out and you post it in. Now it's the ads on a jobs platform, you get Microsoft Word out, and then you PDF it up and you lodge it in either through email or through an applicant tracking system. That's fine when everyone's using desktops and laptops. It just doesn't work on mobile and it can never be made to work on mobile. And so looking at the way that young people operate now, everything is done on mobile. So you know, Snapchat only exists on mobile. Instagram only exists on mobile. Facebook, 90% mobile traffic now. We've got this world and we're looking at it four years ago going mobile is going to dominate people's time and experience and yet recruitment does not work on mobile and can actually never be made to work on mobile either while you're still wed to CVs. And so... They're the two, you know, in our view, there was, a, there was a problem to solve on both sides of the marketplace there. Our view was very much let's start with young people because they're the ones who are really lurching towards mobile rapidly. And in many cases now, the data is saying that for a lot of young people, they don't have a laptop or a desktop. And so it has to be a mobile-driven recruitment experience for them to be able to apply for those jobs. And I think that the thing that's really surprised us is the number of employers out there now still. So four years in, 2019, you go to any of the top 10 employers in Australia, including people like the supermarkets, the banks, you need a laptop or a desktop to apply for a job there, which in our view is completely insane. You take those kind of entry-level jobs that are supermarket stacking shelves, for example, sorry, can't apply for this job unless you've got a laptop or a desktop. I know there's no one in those businesses who are saying we're going to discriminate based on whether or not you've got a laptop or a desktop. And that's 100% not what they're doing, but that's what's actually ended up happening now. So you can't get an entry-level job without having one of those devices, which are, in many cases, you know, particularly for lower socioeconomic groups, they don't have those devices available or at home. And so there's a real shift. And it's, in many cases, we've talked to big employers who are saying, look, we've seen a shift in the demographics of people who are applying. We're not getting young people applying anymore. We've got a talent attraction problem. Let's go and do a Facebook campaign. And it's like, well, hang on, let's look through this. Let's map out your application process. Actually, it's 25 screens and it doesn't work on a mobile device and young people are all on mobile. So actually, you've got a talent conversion problem, not a talent attraction problem. And so that's something we've been banging the drum very loudly on this for three or four years now. I think there's a real challenge for those bigger employers because they actually need to throw out the systems they've got at the moment and start again. And that's a major, major IT piece of work. And so I think it's you know, it's, it's going to be quite a long time before this really happens properly, but at some point, it's going to have to happen. And I think that the CV and the, or the resume has been around for a long time. Yeah. Is the writing on the wall, do you predict the end of the CV? I did four years ago. <laughs> and it's, the demise of the CV has been greatly overpredicted. I'd say probably has been for some time as well. I think it's the real challenge, and this is what we've been trying to do with Found, is to get 
critical mass behind one particular platform to let people actually create these CVs and submit them to employers. And so we've now got to the point, we've got 800,000 candidates on the platform. The challenge that we've seen is that employers have just been really, really slow to change because you've got this massive, we've talked about it before, 30% youth underemployment and unemployment. And so they're going, uh, you know what, I get enough people through this process anyway. I don't need to be better. What's the upside in me being better? And it's like, well, you're just hiring the talent that manages to get through your process now. You're not actually out there hiring the best talent. You're hiring the talent who's got a laptop and a desktop. You know, is that really what you're trying to do with your recruitment process? And is that how you want to shape your workforce? And I think that's what's happening at the moment. In many cases, the HR teams don't have the budget or the ability to really make those system changes they need to. And so it's going to be a case of, you know, we don't need to change because there's such high unemployment and underemployment. We're getting enough people anyway on one side. On the other side of the coin, they just don't have the resources or the kind of IT capability to really make the changes they need to. And so it's quite a sad dynamic. They're kind of, in many cases, HR teams stuck between IT on one side and quite, I said, it's actually quite discriminatory hiring practices on the other, but there's nothing they can do about it right now. Makes a ton of sense. And sort of sum up our discussion on the gig economy and remote work and so forth. When I sort of reflect on that, you sort of think that Maybe some of the old models are not that broken and there's been a lot of experiments and I think we continue to, I guess, augment the way that we work, uh, particularly through technology. So is that a fair summation? Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, we don't need to drive gig economy into the entire workforce. We need to drive more flexible working in the entire workforce and that's letting people build flexible rostering systems that take people's personal circumstances into account, maybe work with second jobs we've kind of lurched to this extreme case because we haven't been able to do the the halfway point. But I think it's very much traditional employment models will continue indefinitely into the future. We're not all going to become contractors. We're not all going to go to different places for work every day. We're not going to work with different people every day either. So this kind of traditional employment will continue for certainly for the, as far as I can see into the future, but flexibility will start to ramp up. And I think what's really holding back the flexibility at the moment in many cases is just systems, which you know, we need the next wave of technology investments inside these workforces, inside these workplaces, sorry, to really, that is what will transform the way that we work is being able to tech enable that. I really think as well that in all of that, there's so many different models, so many different options. Yep. It really is about finding what works for you as an individual, but also as an organization, right? Yeah. And it, that kind of the extension of the metaphor where I was, you know, I was ranting before about open plan offices don't work for me, don't work for a lot of other people. Well, Fixed rosters don't work for a lot of people either. So let's find a way to make a flexible roster which works for the employer because they can get more of their better staff and when they want, works for the employee because they can schedule it around either family or other jobs or whatever it might be. And let's make that system work as well. And so that people can be, you know, in many cases, people are more than willing to, as I said, do more work, you know, be more productive. A lot of people have a lot of untapped capability where they're just they're kind of a, a square peg in a round hole effectively. So the more that the employer can adapt to, you know, you're a square peg, here's a square hole, you're a round peg, you're a round hole. And actually, if you change during the day, that's fine as well. So that whole spectrum, I think there's just massive opportunity for getting that right. And in most cases, we haven't even started that journey yet. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. Firstly, wish you the very best with found. Good luck with killing off the resume. I think a lot of people thank, <laughs> thank you, you for that. <laughs> But look, it's been a ton of fun having you on. So uh, thank you very much. Thanks for the invite. And thank you very much to all our listeners. Thanks for listening to Worked. Please check out more of our shows at readytech.com.au. Thanks all.